Who's in charge? Samoa is trying to find a way forward out of what some call a constitutional crisis. There is a standoff between the Human Rights Protection Party, HRPP, and the Faith in One True God Party, known as FAST. On one side is Tule La Epa Maleailinga Oi. He's, uh, he's been in office for some 23 years. And Samoa's first elected female prime minister, Fiame Naomi Mataafa. She was locked out of parliament on the day of her swearing-in ceremony, so she held one in a makeshift tent outside of the building. We reached out to Lene Nui Cruze to try and understand this dilemma. Cruze is an adjunct professor at Brigham Young University and a Pacific Island Studies lecturer at the University of Hawaii at West Oahu. She is also the author of the book, The Pacific Insular Case of American Samoa Land Rights and Law in Unincorporated U.S. Territories. She's been reaching out to many in the community at this turning point in Samoa's history. My husband actually used to be in the Samoa Law Society, kind of like our bar of Samoa. So part of what my book is about is actually about this, <laughs> kind of how you have the hybrid uh, between Western law and indigenous law. But in this case, because you have the head of state that is now involved in self to try to make a dissolution of a general election, and in that time waiting for the Supreme Court, what they have done now that the Supreme Court has already rendered its verdict. And so I think the ceremony outside the Supreme Court in a tent is really them following what the Supreme Court decision is. And they're really just going through the motion of trying to complete what the Constitution lays out. Because you have 45 days, and it actually in the Constitution, it gives you by 9.30 in the morning, you will be sworn in. You will be sworn in by the head of state. Then the Speaker of the House has this duty, and they're standing orders in order to go throughout in swearing in a new parliament. But since the head of state refused to attend, and because the Speaker of the House refused to unlock the building, what they did is to achieve what the constitutional rights are supposed to do to swear in a new parliament. It's kind of like the head of state didn't want to come. The Speaker of the House didn't want to come. The clerk didn't want to come. So what they're doing is their best to actually fulfill what the Constitution requires for a new government. Everybody's calling this a constitutional crisis, and they're looking for ways to resolve this. So in in your mind, then, the traditional system, you don't see a solution there? No, and there is there cannot be a solution there because you already had a general election which is not a traditional means to having a leader. So because we already applied a general election to a parliamentary system, which is a Western form of government, the FAST party is trying to obey the Constitution, which, of course, you already know, it's a Western form of instrument of governance. So they are trying their best, which is why they went to the Supreme Court, and they wanted to see, can the head of state... Um, call a second election? Supreme Court said no. Okay, can the Electoral Commission, can they put in a woman parliamentarian, a part of the HRPP party? Supreme Court said no. So when they said no, no, that's when the FAST party went on Monday and said, okay, we're here to be sworn in. And then the clerk says, no, we're not going to open the door. We'll pull the tent. We're going to do it out here because the Constitution actually says you have to convene the new Parliament within 45 days, and it gives a time, it's 9.30 in the morning. 
they did that. There's a reason why they were there at nine. They were there and they did it by 930 in the morning. And going for it as of right now, with the swearing in and then the traditional function, which you just mentioned, they had an Ava ceremony. That Ava ceremony is the symbol that you have now been declared, so to speak, customarily. Now you are our leader of our people. So what we are now waiting to see is if the Supreme Court is going to confirm the swearing in that was done outside of the parliament building without the constitutionally mandated people to perform the ceremonial function. That's what everyone is waiting for. And as we wait, you have already seen, I mean, the Federated States of Micronesia has already offered their congratulatory wishes to FIAMA. So if more countries provide their congratulations, showing more legitimacy towards what had happened outside of the traditional parliament and without the required people to perform the function, then perhaps it may force them politically within the international realm to do for the current HRPP to open the parliament. <laughs> but if they refuse to leave and the police also refuse to get involved, because obviously the AG works for the HRPP, the, the uh, police, they get their paychecks from the HRPP. You know, everyone's trying to make sure they still get their paychecks. They still have to feed their children. So without the police involvement and the head of state is married to the party in parliament because the party in parliament votes for whomever is the head of state, they are married together, which is the reason why the head of state involved himself to uh, make a dissolution of the first general elections and call for the second. It's so awkward. So awkward. It's so awkward, right? And some of these things everyone's saying, I don't think these are things that you could have foreseen as Samoa being the first country to achieve independence in Oceania. But also, it's a really great time to perhaps relook at the uh, one of the things that have been recommended is the head of state have his own legal counsel, because right now it is the office of the prime minister that provides legal counsel to the head of state. He does not have a budget for this. So when he receives counsel, so they you read about in mainstream foreign media, they don't realize that counsel comes directly from HRPP, the party in power. So what Samoa's legal community, the Samoa Law Society, has recommended, and so has the Supreme Court in their writ, that the head of state should have his own budgetary budget to have his own legal counsel independent of the other branches. Because uh, Samoa, you know, has its first female prime minister, and there's the whole thing with the uh, quotas, um, mm. I mean, how are you looking at this? Well, it's a patriarchal society, but I think the entire American Me Too movement, this is not the context in Samoa. I'm going to share their uh, Fia May. Her father was the first prime minister. Fia May is actually a title. It's a very high title, in fact, because her first name is Naomi, you know, Mata'afa. Her, her father was the first prime minister of the first country that was independent from Aotearoa, New Zealand. So she, for most of her life, has actually 
been in politics as the high chief. She's a former minister of parliament. She's the first female cabinet member. She's the first female deputy prime minister. This politicking really isn't a gender issue. This is strictly politicking at its best. It was HRPP that tried to pull the gender card to appoint their party member to achieve the 10% constitutional provision for women. That was a gender card to fulfill their party uh, winning. But this issue of FEMA being a woman, um, that's not an issue because traditionally and in Western politics, she is a heavy hitter. FEMA, that title that she has traditionally, actually a higher title than the, than the HRPP leader. Her, her traditional power mm-hmm. is she comes hard hitting. You've seen Washington Post, New York Times, people, they're all now starting to report about it. But I also think it's from an, it's from an American perspective and lens. Because of Me Too, everyone seemed to, all the journalists seem to be focusing on the facts of her gender, and it leads a lens through that, that means. But it's not an actual issue that anyone is writing about in the islands, particularly in Samoa, whether it's mainstream or not. And you've already seen there are so many graduate-level intelligent Samoans that are writing about this, they don't mention it gender because it's it's not about that. It's straight just politicking on who party can try to manipulate and use the Constitution as a sword to try to find a way to keep that party in power. Anything else you want to add just about this whole situation and how people are looking from the outside in? I just think this is an incredible opportunity to see how this first country to achieve independence in Oceania now, you know, 50-odd years later, has this what you aptly describe as this kind of constitutional crisis to see how they are going to pull themselves out. It's been been now since April 9th. That was the first general election. So really it's this what... The mainstream media is called six weeks of crisis post-general election. But what I think is also great for this country in being an independent country is all the branches of government, the attorney general's office, every party involved is a someone that is fighting for an agenda, and they're seeking to find analysis and how the Constitution applies to their actions and even the inactions of their own. Unlike other Pacific Island nations, you've had sub-demographics that have been involved in party politics in their agenda, uh, uh, I guess, vehicles towards power. I think in looking at Samoa, uh, it is a very internal struggle in how they will try to achieve power. But also, you listen to the FAST leader, Fiamme, she also is striving for peace and political stability which has always been a philosophical value for this country at the emphasis of their independence in 62. That was Linenoe Cruze, adjunct professor at BYU and lecturer at UH West Oahu on Pacific Island Studies. She's also the author of the book, The Pacific Insular Case of American Samoa Land Rights and Law in Unincorporated U.S. Territory. 
This is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omoloka, olana, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Public high school graduations kicked off this past weekend, so we're testing your knowledge of Hawaii schools in today's backyard quiz. Thousands of high school seniors across the state completed their studies and commemorated the occasion through various ceremonies. For the second straight year, alternative graduation formats with limited guests were used to comply with COVID-19 health and safety guidelines. Some schools held drive-through diploma pickups. Others held ceremonies in large outdoor venues like Aloha Stadium, where participants could be distanced six feet apart. The oldest public high school in Hawaii is Lahaina Luna, which was built in 1831 as a seminary for boys and young men. It became a secondary school, what we call a high school today, in 1843. The oldest public high school on Oahu is McKinley, originally named Honolulu High School. On Hawaii Island, it's Kau, and on Kauai, it's Kauai High, all built in the late 1800s. Flash forward to 2021, and you'll find the total number of public high schools across the state standing at 45. With so many working to educate our youth today, we're wondering if you know which Hawaii high school is the largest by enrollment. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center. NareedHawaii.com. all spent more than our fair share at home this past year Uh, but today's long view explores the notion that there are people out there who are taking being a homebody to a whole new level contributing editor neil milner is here to talk with us about the meteoric rise of the real estate platform zillow and what its popularity says about the dream of home ownership these days welcome neil hi how are you Catherine? good so uh what got you on this was it that saturday night live skit the other night or what no i didn't see the saturday night live take on zillow until after i got interested in it and the saturday night live take is terrific because it compares people going on zillow to people going on porn sites <laughs> with the same kind of reaction and um you know the, the sex part aside although we'll come back to the sex stuff later um the idea of fantasy and illusion seems to be very much a part of the uh, increase in the use of Zillow. First of all, the size of the increase is amazing. There's about 10 million visits 
10 billion visits to Zillow last year, which is an increase of about fivefold from the year before. So it's pretty clear that during the COVID year, people were spending a whole lot of time uh, checking out Zillow. And a recent survey uh, done suggests how much time. Now, I should say something about the survey. It's a little bit methodologically uncertain because we don't know a whole lot about sampling. But if you put it with the other stuff, it certainly suggests that there is an increase in the, in, in the use of Zillow and not to mention other uh, real estate sites, and that a lot of this seems to have to do with the kind of fantasies and disappointments people have about uh, the housing market. So the, the first thing to say about the survey, and then I'll stop for now, is to say that according to the survey of 1,000 people, 55% of the people they surveyed said that they spent about four hours a day uh, during the last year on, on the Zillow site. And most of them are not buying houses. They don't go on to say that they want to buy a house or, like in my case, even to see what kind of houses my kids in Portland were looking at when they were thinking of buying. So there's something else that people are doing when they go online. Yeah, I mean, you're at home, but, I mean, I don't know, four hours seems excessive to me. <laughs> but, yeah, you're just being nosy. You want to find out, eh, you know, what's out there exactly. Well, that's right. Part of it is being nosy, but a lot of the other part seems to have to do with the wishful thinking that people have about houses. A high percentage of people go on and look at houses that are uh, at least $100,000 more than what they could afford. Um, a lot of people go on to look at very expensive houses, to look at the kind of houses that richer people are looking at. And it seems to be because for many people, owning a house has become more of a fantasy and more of an illusion. And this gives you a chance really to experience, um, I don't know, it's like experiencing Fantasia back in the day, the, the classic Disney uh, you know, mm -hmm. animated thing, where it gives you a chance to imagine yourself in another world. Um, and I think that's become a very important part of it's become a very important part of the use of the use of social media, and it seems to me that that's going on here also. Yeah, I mean, it's not even being like addicted to a soap opera. I mean, it's like it's a daydream, you know, kind of a Walter Mitty kind of thing. Well, although there may be a kind of uh, you know a kind of addiction to drama that's there. One of the reasons that people like to watch plays and like to watch movies and like to listen to stories is because it puts them in another place. Some of us have trouble thinking that a you know three bedroom two bath colonial uh, is the same thing as watching I don't know Orson Welles, uh, but I think that that's actually part of what's going on here. It, it's it's a dreamscape. It's part of what people do to entertain themselves. Um, I should mention that you know if if that makes you think about fantasies that about half the people in this survey said that they would rather go online with Zillow than to have sex. Um, and I'll just leave it there for you to figure out what's going on there. Um, but a, a, a significant percentage of people had said that in, in the past period of time, they've, they've canceled an engagement with a friend in order to stay on site. So again, I'm saying, you know, this survey we need to know more about the survey, but if you look more at that, along with this increase in the use of um, in the use of Zillow, then um, 
you then you know you get a sense of how much it's used. And those of you who haven't used it, I don't know if there's anybody in America hasn't looking at this. If you go online and you do one of these 3D house tours, room by room, you can see how it turns into a kind of a short movie, a short subject that allows you to peer into something that you don't have and to imagine that you would like it. I had to chuckle because. Um, one of the statistics is 63% have looked up the value of a friend's house. 53% have looked up the value of their boss's house. <laughs> right. Yeah. I did neither with anybody at HPR. So you're <laughs> all you're all clean as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So so it is interesting. I mean, what you know, what people are kind of navigating uh, toward. You know, TikTok, right? Uh, yes. Is, is is has just certainly. Uh, uh, triggered some unusual trends. Well, that's right. I mean, we're really tapping into something that we're only beginning to understand and, and that we talk about the amount of time kids stay on social media and uh, the amount of time that's good for you and all of that. I think we still have a long ways to go on this, and I think it's, this is another example of how um, how profoundly the, um, the social media, these kind of things, change our lives. It'll be interesting to see whether a year from now the number of hits have gone down. Uh, at the same time, there's all kinds of reasons to think that they may go up because the housing market is so screwy right now that if any, and nationally, if anybody has any curiosity about it, uh, they should, you know, they're, they're likely to be tempted to go on. I'm wondering, too, if there are more hits on the single-family homes versus the condos, you know, since everybody was trying to uh, physically distance with their neighbors. Yeah, that's Sure, there's probably all kinds of things that you can find out. You're not going to find it out, I, I don't think, from this, from that one particular survey. Uh, but I think that if and, and my guess is, of course, that uh, that the uh, sites have this information. Zillow has all of that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm sure that uh, that these, uh, you know, that the, the kind of big data principles that operate are certainly there for real estate sites. If for no other reason than they want to see whether they should advertise uh, for you know whether they should advertise back for you but you know, because that's part of what's that's part of what's going on a little sidelight that i noticed i used to use zillow for a kind of nerdy social science reason i used to use it to look at the racial compositions of elementary of, of, of public schools in cities to kind of map out uh, segregation in a sort of real estate sort of way Zillow took that off the website a couple of years ago. You can't get that information anymore. Um, I'm not sure why, but it was an, another way to, to use the uh, to use these real estate sites as sort of a snapshot. Well, I know uh, my addiction was to uh, you know want ads and public notices. I always thought you could really find out what was happening in the community. You know, so I checked Craigslist and you know, but Facebook sure. does that as well. So it just kind of taking the pulse i guess well i think that's right and i think also when you when you talk about uh, public notice things i think people look at at obituaries for mm -hmm. some of the same reasons also you know i would guess that most of the time people are looking at obituaries not because someone close to them has passed away they're looking at them as another source of information do i know this person what does it say about him did i you know was he in my high school graduating class all those sorts of things. I would guess that if you got, uh, if you got that kind of information from newspapers, uh, where they're very clear about what uh, obituaries are, and in fact, the Star Advertiser sort of uh, tarted up their obituary page a few years ago uh, when they started putting in more pictures.
Yeah, well, it's it, interesting uh, what the pandemic has taught us about ourselves. But yeah, thanks so much, that's Neil. That's not right. And some of that's good, and some of it is really yeah. weird. All right. Well, we've been talking to political scientist Neil Milner, regular contributing editor of our bi-weekly, bi-weekly segment, The Long View, here on Hawaii Public Radio. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, investing in new ships, cranes, and terminals to continue serving Hawaii communities for generations to come. Matson.com. Coming Saturday, May 29th, it's a live stream Atherton Studio performance with slack key guitarist Jeff Peterson. The Grammy and Nahoku Hanohano Award winner will perform songs from his recent release, Mele Nahe Nahe, plus music from his travels. This members-only show is online, so join us from anywhere. Sign up at hprtickets.org. A veteran's home is being built on land that was initially set aside to build affordable housing. That's the subject of today's Reality Check. Honolulu Civil Beat's new deputy editor, Kim Gamble, is on the line today. Welcome, Kim. Hi, how are you? Good. So, you know, I'm glad that you followed up on this because I was wondering whatever happened to this proposal because that veterans home was going to be built up uh, kind of in in my uh, neighborhood uh, over there by Diamond Head, by KCC. Yeah, that's. That's right. It went through a long search for a home. Um, it was supposed, well, the, they initially pinpointed an area near Diamond Head, as you noted, but that land turned out to be owned by the University of Hawaii, and that didn't work out. So they also um, chose a site in Aiea, um, but that was city-owned land, and the neighbors weren't happy about that because it was going to infringe on some of the few open spaces in the area. So um, they finally um, applied to the HFDC, the housing agency, and they agreed to a deal to let them build the facility on seven acres in Kapolei. And that lot has been vacant for a long time. It has. It has. You know, it it was designated to for affordable housing, as you noted, and the seven acres is part of a bigger lot, which is a total of... 26 or 27 acres. And um, the problem was, you know, that they have been having trouble finding somebody to develop the land. In 2013, um, HHFDC received and accepted a bid from a development team um, in San Diego to develop the land um, for mixed use, which would include affordable housing. But that fell through because there were problems with the sewer and other issues. And so this... uh property then in Kapolei, uh, uh, I mean, they had to find some place, right? Because there was money that was attached to this project that would have lapsed. That's right. Um, there were a series. There were a series of delays, including during the bidding process to develop um, the facility. Um, the the bidder, you know, re- lodged a protest, so they were running short on time because um, they had to they had to allocate the funds 
before the end of last year or lose them. Basically, this is being funded by, in large part, by a federal grant from the Veterans Administration from the Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, they're, they're funding it at about $44 million, and then the state is providing the rest. So there is a matter of time, and so they settled on this land, and they broke ground last month, so the project is underway. And I think no one's probably disputing that there is a need to provide uh, someplace for the veterans, right? Uh, and, and yet you've got this affordable housing need as well. Yeah, it's an interesting case because there is a strong need for both. You know, um, right now Hawaii only has one state veterans home, and that's on the Big Island. It's a 95-bed facility in Hilo. Um, It also has 60 beds in the Army Medical Facility, but that's not, you know, a dedicated facility. So um, a 2014 um, study revealed that they needed about... um, about 173 beds more. So with this new home, they'll still be um, they'll still be about 53 beds short. But this is going to make up for a lot. Also, you know there are an estimated um, 118,000 veterans in Hawaii, and 85,000 of those live on Oahu. So there's really a strong need for that here. But obviously, the need for affordable housing is is well known as well. And then, as things get more expensive. And then you also reached out to uh, Sylvia Luke, the finance chair, right? Because th- there were some discussions about, you know, so what do we do if we take this land out of the pot for affordable housing projects? That's right. Representative Luke was really worried um, about that. And um, because, you know, that also um, takes away revenue for the housing agency, um, which which they need to fund other properties. Um, in fact, that's how it came to the attention of her committee, is that they were warned they might need to ask for more help. So she actually held a meeting with the various departments involved, including the Defense Department, and um, they she instructed them to find comparable state land to make up for this okay. lost parcel. All right, so we'll see uh, what they actually uh, find. Um, to tackle yeah, this so problem. so far, no word on that, okay. and the defense department wouldn't comment about it. But um, yes, we will definitely keep track of this situation. All right. Well, thanks so much, Kim. Great. Thanks, Catherine. That was Honolulu Civil Beats deputy editor Kim Gamble with today's reality check. To read her story on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. groups dedicated to restoring limu, or seaweed, along Hawaii's shorelines are calling on Governor David Ige to designate 2022 as Year of the Limu. HPR reporter Kuvehi Reishi joins us in studio to talk about this. Good morning, Kuvehi. Good morning, Catherine. Limu lovers, I like to call them, were somewhat taken aback uh, when a resolution that actually went through the, leg- uh, the legislature this past session uh, stalled uh, in the end after breezing through uh, the Senate. And so, uh, you know, there are a lot of priorities, so that was understood, but uh, supporters still want to figure out how 
to uh, get this designation for 2022, and they hope Governor Ige will listen to that. And, um, you know, this resolution was really a culmination of decades of community-driven restoration um, when it comes to Limu. And so I, I reached out to uh, my own Limu whisper, uh, Uncle Wally Ito, uh, to help me better understand all of this. Uh, he's a fisherman, lifelong fisherman, but also a trained marine biologist who's really taken on um, guiding the state and other communities through trying to figure out how to restore Limu in their specific areas. So we went out to uh, Oneula Beach in Eva. This was a great, you know, out in the field type thing. Uh, and this is also Hobush if, uh, for people who might be familiar with the area. And he says back in the 60s and 70s, there would be piles of Limu two feet high that would wash up onto the shore to the point where you couldn't even see the white sand, uh, which was really uh, eye-opening to me when I went there because you, we only really found sprigs here and there of, of different types of limu. But uh, this decline really by the 90s, uh, you, you wouldn't see those type of uh, piles of limu anywhere uh, on this island. And so uh, Ito's mentor, Henry Chang Wu, uh, also of EVA, uh, began raising awareness about the decline and started monthly uh, plantings of limu in EVA. He helped spearhead the creation of the state's first limu management area in Puloa, where folks uh, would have to leave the limu, the native limu, to grow and then uh, couldn't take for certain times of the year. But this really created a template for other communities across the island chain uh, to implement in their particular areas. And so this resolution was sort of going to be a a uh, celebration of all these efforts, but also a, a, an increased awareness about the, the decline of, of native Limu. And Ito says, you know, this request to designate uh, the Limu as a, or year 2022 as the year of Limu is something that uh, they hope will be done officially, but even if not, they plan uh, to hold Limu days next year and come up with other ways of creating awareness. But uh, here's Ito to talk about that. It's just a recognition by the state. We doing all this effort, a lot of the restoration effort, the teaching, you know, creating awareness. Uh, a big part of that is um, state kuleana. But, you know, we're not depending on the state. All we ask is the state to recognize that Limu uh, is important and what we're doing is important. So when Ito started out uh, working with uh, Henry Chang-Wo, they, he had said that they'd maybe do three Limu uh, community sessions a year, right? Because folks began to, uh, that hunger for knowing about Limu uh, began to grow. And now he's doing three at least a week. And so that hunger and that iini uh, or desire to really restore Limu in all these communities is something I think um, folks are seeing. Uh, you went to Waimanalo and saw yes. the Limu Hui there. Yeah, that was interesting because they're at what they call Turtle Pond. You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's not the real name, Pond but, you know, yeah, yeah uh, uh, just a, a in front of the area, which people say is, uh, you know, where Obama has some interest yes. in property over there, uh, that, uh, yeah, it was interesting to see the community you know, every Sunday they go out there and restore the, the wall and, and uh, the idea is that they will kind of bring back the, the limo to the area, bring back the fish, attract the turtles again. Exactly right. They talk about limu as sort of that building block for the entire marine food chain. If you don't have the limu, you don't have the fish. 
and then uh, that works its way up to humans. Uh, but it's interesting that you mentioned the uh, coastal development because that is one of the factors um, that has contributed to decline in Limu across the state. Coastal development, the lack of or loss of fresh water uh, going back uh, into the streams, over-harvesting, of course, uh, and um, really uh, taking the chance or taking this next year and taking this time to celebrate the efforts that have been done, but also to, to raise awareness about uh, the importance of Limu in that chain. Yeah, well, I, I recall doing stories, uh, I think uh, the Department of Land and Natural Resources had a project at one time uh, out there on Sand Island where the, uh, there was a graduate student that was trying to start uh, growing seaweed on limestone tiles that you could get at the you know the hardware store and then planting those in uh, in the reef right uh, the very innovative techniques on how to do this i think there's also some research interesting scientific research being done on the use of certain native limos to help and filter that water uh, right pollution in any water so uh, either way whether it's food or, or for science i think it'll be interesting to see uh, the growth of awareness about limo yes all right so we'll have to watch to see if uh, governor ige designates next year is Le the year of the limo. That sounds good. <laughs> Thanks so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. That was HPR's Kuvehi Hiriishi talking about limu. To read her stories, head to hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to this week's Manu Minute. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to one of Hawaii's many honey creepers, the amakihi. In Ohia forests all over the Big Island, you can hear the song of the Hawaii amakihi. It's one of over 50 species known as Hawaiian honeycreepers that all trace their ancestry to a single finch that came from Asia to Hawaii over 5 million years ago. Amakihi forage for nectar and insects, and sometimes even fly into neighborhoods in Puna and Kona. In traditional Hawaiian culture, their yellow and green feathers were used in beautiful ahuula, or feather cloaks, worn by the ali'i. And in stories, their calls were often seen as the scolding voice of reason. Because mosquitoes are not native to Hawaii, many honeycreepers don't have a natural resistance to mosquito-transmitted diseases like avian malaria. But lucky for us, the amakihi is one of the few that does. Support for Manu Minute comes from the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to supporting the Hakalau Refuge and conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More on helping at friendsofhakalauforest.org.
For today's Backyard Quiz, we asked if you knew which Hawaii high school is the largest by enrollment. The school opened in 1962 and is named after the real estate tycoon who immigrated from Ireland to the U.S. when he was 13. Two years later, after finding work on a whaling ship, he became shipwrecked in the South Pacific. He survived and lived in Tahiti until he was able to get passage on another whaling vessel bound for Maui. After arriving in Hawaii, he ventured into real estate, buying up large tracts of land in the Eva area that he turned into a sugar plantation. His namesake school's first graduation took place in 1965, with approximately 225 seniors participating. Today, it has an enrollment of over 3,000 students, and this year it boasts the largest graduating class of any Hawaii public high school, 650. That probably means if you live in the Eva area, you're going to go to be, you're going to be going to graduation parties for the next several months. It also means you probably know we're talking about James Campbell High School, home of the Sabers. That is the answer to today's backyard quiz. And congratulations of Warren of Wailuku, Maui. He knew the answer. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, featuring island-style lunch at the open-air Homa Cafe and evening bar service on Fridays and Saturdays. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Today we hear from a young book author named Blake Lee. The 11-year-old fifth grader at Punahou School penned a story entitled The Brave Little Bird. It's about how the habitat of a native bird is threatened by the rapid ohia death disease. Blake's mom, Nessa Lee, worked to get it published on Amazon. Part of the proceeds will go towards groups working to combat rapid ohia death. Here's Blake. So the name of my book is The Brave Little Bird. It starts off... A sweet little bird named Pili lived on the island of Oahu. He was blessed with bright red feathers and a beautiful beak. Pili the honey creeper was such a loved little bird. Pili was also a fun-loving bird with lots of friends and family. He spent his days chasing other birds, hopping on trees, visiting his flower friends, and singing beautiful songs. Life was happy for Pili. But does the story have a happy ending? We reached out to Blake and his mother, Nessa, to find out more about the book, which he dedicated to his teacher. So I dedicated it to my teacher, Kumunu Uhiba, and she was one of my first teachers that taught me about Hawaiian plants and animals. And she always pushed me to learn more about Hawaii, which inspired me to help the Ohia and Something I will miss about her is her kindness and humor since she's going to retire this year. And then, so I decided to dedicate the book to her. Well, that's really sweet. And this is a really sweet story. I mean, how is it that you decided to come up with this idea and turn this into a book? Well, again, it started in third grade when I learned about native birds from Maikumu. 
And the plants and native birds really intrigued me, and this eventually inspired me to learn and research more about birds and plants. And I w- as I was researching, I started to realize how bad native birds and plants were being affected, which inspired me to want to find a cure for rapid ohia death or rod and contribute to the community. Eventually, uh, researching about rod made me really interested in science, and they ended up um, writing a science paper for school. And my current teacher, Cheryl Dussel, encouraged me to publish my science paper. And so me and my mom didn't really know how to publish <laughs> books yet. And so we started off with something simple, like a children's book. And so, Nessa, jump in here. I mean, what was that like, <laughs> doing the research to figure out how you bring this story to life in a book? It was a steep learning curve. So we, you know, it was a lot of Googling. <laughs> so Blakey and I just, it, it started off as a fun project for us. So we just found that on Amazon you can self-publish, but it was really tough. I mean, we tried to upload it and the pictures didn't match. It, it was it was kind of a disaster at first, but Blake worked really hard to try to make the illustrations fit the page, have the interiors match. You know, you, when you have two pages facing each other, it has to match and have a flow to it. And so, in the, the trial and error, I did it. And we said, if we sell two books, we'll be really happy. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it came out way better than we ever imagined. It was, it was a really fun project to work with my son on. And so, Blake, you know, you did all the illustrations, too. And, you know, I've never seen an EEV. Um, and so, you know, was that, I don't know, was it hard for you to do the artwork as well? The artwork wasn't that hard. I mean, I've never seen an EEV before, but I could just search it online and then apply it to the book. Gosh, I, I don't know if you have any ohia in your garden. I had one, but it didn't do so well in, in my backyard. <laughs> Um, Ours too. Yeah. You, oh, so we you tried. tried? We tried to plant one, and then our yard man killed it. <laughs> it was. I was. It was a very sore subject for me. But Blake used that plant to study it because you know he was very interested in trying to save the ohia. So he would take small little samples of our little ohia plant and study it until it died. But not 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 at not at his hand. <laughs> well, talk about how that you hope to share some of the proceeds of the sale of the book. Okay, so I'm hoping to take part of the book proceeds and donate it to organizations that are helping to fight uh, rod. It's not a lot of money, but it's a start. Also, if children in Hawaii are made aware of what's happening, they too can help in efforts to save the Ohia and I bridge. Gosh, so this book just got published this month. I mean, it's it's just hot off the presses. We just posted it on Facebook and at my workplace, and it, the response was, we were so surprised of the overwhelming response. And teacher friends were saying, you know, teachers really want, need books like this to show kindness, being aware about the environment, and with a local tone to it. So I think we, we were just really kind of taken aback at the support we we received from our community so the book sells for less than ten dollars and getting back to the question will this story have a happy ending here's blake one day peely's father flew home looking concerned 
Tomorrow we have to leave for Maui, he announced. Well, what do you mean? We can't leave. All my friends are here. This isn't fair, cried Pili. Father looked at Pili with much sadness in his eyes. Pili, look around you. Our home environment and climate has changed. Mosquitoes, rats, and mongoose are hunk, hunk, hurting our fellow EEV friends and making them sick. A new enemy has made its way into our ecosystem. It's called rapid ohia death. It's destroying our ohia trees. The next morning, Pili's family left their home with heavy hearts. Tears flooded Pili's eyes as he turned back to see the devastation on his home, sweet home. Goodbye, he squeaked, choking on tears. As they flew over the island, Billy decided to put up one last fight and call for help. Opening his beak wide, he wailed out a sad cry for others to hear. I hope someone will hear our cry for help, Billy whispered as he and his family departed from Maui. Ellie the Elepayo heard Pili's cry. Ellie rounded up her gang. Come on, everyone. You gotta stick together and help Pili. The Elepayos flew to the very tops of the trees and sang for help. Word spread through the island that the birds were in danger. The people started to notice the Ohia tree suffering and the birds disappearing. Adults and children realized they stopped hearing the beautiful chirping of the EEV. We have to do something. Scientists came to care for the trees. People posted signs. TV stations reported the arrival of rapid Ohia death. Awareness spread around the island that the Ohia and the and birds needed to be saved. The people on the island rallied together and started planting baby Ohia trees while taking care of the existing trees. Little by little, tree by tree, the people worked together to save the Ohia tree. Ellie and the Ella Piles flew to Maui to visit Pili. They told Pili and his fellow birds the good news. People have been trying to save the Ohia. By sticking together, one day soon we can hopefully be together at home. The end. Or at least Blake leaves us with the hopeful ending. The real end is up to us. Oh, and we asked what his teacher, his kumu, Maxine Uhiva, thought of the book when he showed it to her. He said she cried. Mahalo Kumu, as this month we give a hanaho to teachers, and mahalo to Blakely and his mother Nessa for sharing this story. Tomorrow, we take you to Long Beach, California to a gathering place for Pacific Island artists. We spotlight Pacifica transmissions. Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR, or tweet us at HI Conversation. Email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard today? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.